welcome back to episode six. My name is Marlo. And my name is Rachel. And we are some cool theater cats who will be chatting today about postmodernist theater. Postmodernist theater encompasses many things. Today we are specifically talking about theater of the absurd and devised theater. We'll end the episode off with an interview with Anton de Groot, a theater designer from Calgary with plenty of experience in devised work. All right, Marlo. I want to start off today's discussion by asking you a question. COVID times have really shaken up the world, not just because of the isolation, though that's a big part of it. I think it's also impacted how we view our neighbors, how much we're willing to trust people in power to make the right decision. When this is all over and we're a bit more free to make new art, what sort of art do you think will come out of this period? Hmm. This is really the first global event that a lot of people have experienced. Obviously, some of our grandparents that are still alive had World War II, but this is the most far-reaching and all-encompassing thing that a lot of generations have collectively gone through, and I think we do need to deal with it collectively. I don't even think it'll all be about COVID specifically, but it will certainly impact the art that we make because this time has taught us about so much. I think it really has taught us about humanity, things we need, things we can't live without. It's taught us about relationships and community and how to look after each other. And I do want to see art about that. I want to see art about how we showed up for each other and how we failed to show up for each other, about the unity and the division. We need to keep asking questions about this year. How do we move forward? How do we do better? I think in order to properly mourn what we lost and hope for what we will find, we need to let all of this out. I used to think that I didn't actually want to see any art about COVID after everything was all over because I just wanted to move on and never think about it again. But I think that's often how we move on from stuff this big, through things that help us collectively process. And not many things do that better than art. Obviously, World War II and COVID are very different things, but we can learn a lot from how they processed their grief and fear and confusion back then. Absolutely. Art, and in particular theater, has always been a place where we can go to process through the big, right? And more than just to find comfort, but also to challenge, to find solution. Letting the wildest and darkest emotions come out. That's something that I love about absurdist theater. When it's taken at its face value, it is so almost obscenely human. It's ridiculous, drastic, unsettling, and hilariously grim. Uh, it's disconcerting in all the ways that humanity is disconcerting and alien in all the ways that the world feels alien. But what is absurdist theater? Well, it is a theater movement that started almost directly after World War II. Something I find super interesting is the trends I've seen in how art responds to global events. There are really two big camps that art falls into after all these things. Either art tries to make sense out of a world that seems now so unfamiliar, uh, or it embraces the unfamiliarity and, and runs with it. Theater of the Absurd definitely belongs in that second camp. <laughs> <laughs> the absurdist movement, like a lot of things, sprung out of post-World War II philosophy called absurdism. The philosophy originated from a philosopher named Albert Camus and his essay entitled The Myth of Sisyphus. The essay happens to be online for free, so I read a bit of it. And let me tell you, this essay was bleak. 
Cadmo argues that the existentialism movement before World War II may have started to accept the inherent absurdity of life, but it still attempts to find meaning in the absurdity, and in so doing, cowardly shies away from the truth if there is nothing but the deeply chaotic absurdity of the universe, then the only way that we can fully be free is to fully accept our meaninglessness. Kenmo preached the need for cosmic indifference. We are never more than individuals struggling against our meaninglessness. And if we settle into that, then we are fully set free. Pretty bleak. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Kamo's philosophy is not my cup of tea. It actually made me feel quite upset. I am of the opinion that indifference, even the most well-meaning, is a dangerous philosophy to define yourself by. But in any case, one part of the essay, Kamo actually addresses theater artists in regards to this philosophy. He claims that the role of the artist is not supposed to explain life, but just to describe it, just to put it on display and not force meaning from it. From this philosophy and its commission to post-World War II artists came the absurdist movement in theater. So absurdism technically lasted as a movement from the late 1940s to the end of the 1960s. Like most movements, it didn't start intentionally. A bunch of playwrights didn't get together and decide, ah, yes, this is what we're doing now. It came organically of each play in the movement influencing the rest. You may have heard some of the famous playwrights of the era, Jean Genet, Harold Pinter, Eugene Ionesco, Edward Albee, Samuel Beckett. Although each playwright had their own styles, there were some specific defining attributes of absurdist plays. Number one, there is much action or character growth. If it is, then it is undone in the last act. Number two, The language is often disjointed and nonsensical. And lastly, the themes are exactly what you would expect to come out of a philosophy of the absurd. They are dark, ugly, metaphysical in nature, and to no one's surprise, often very absurd. (laughs) The point of of absurdism is never to make meaning out of the subject matter, just to put society on display, like theater cruelty. Absurdism is supposed to evoke, though the difference is that theater of cruelty was created so that people would want to physically get up and respond. Theater of the absurd asks you to sit and take it in, just be drawn into the dark, chaotic nature of life, and for a moment find comfort in its meaninglessness. (laughs) Which I think is sort of ironic, seeing as the reason I love absurdist theater so much is because I love to make meaning out of the place. <laughs> I don't think that's what Kenmu intended, but I mean, it's fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love that about any piece of art that as soon as it gets out into the world and makes its way into society, it doesn't belong to the person who created it solely. Mm. It kind of belongs to everyone and we all get to interact with it, interact with it however we want. And that's what I love about absurdism, is that it's so outlandish and absurd um, that the way that people interact with it are so specific, so dependent on the person. And it makes up for some really interesting conversations. And it also lends itself to (laughs) the assignment that we finished with in our acting class. We have to write play reports about Mm. the 
the plays that we read. And at the end of the year, Rachel handed in a little extra sheet of paper containing a list of plays that she has thrown across the room upon finishing. Yes, most of those plays were absurdist plays. Uh, (laughs) um, Yes, because they are so outlandish and so wild. And getting to the end of them, especially being somebody who wants to find meaning in things, getting to the end of the end of them, I would just be so frustrated that I, I would just chuck them. You know, one specific one is waiting for Godot. That one really messed me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget. Uh, I'll never forget the visceral reaction I had to that play. Yes, if you want to you know, begin your foray into theater of the absurd. Waiting for Godot is a a classic good place to start. (laughs) It's an excellent one. Yes. (laughs) Indeed. Now, moving out of the theater of the absurd, I want to begin our discussion in devised theater. This type of theater sort of has its roots in Commedia dell'arte, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. However, that was mostly improv type work. Improv is often part of creating devised work, but while you don't start with a script, you do often end with one, which is then the piece that gets shown to the public. There's a huge variety of types of productions within the devising world, and many different kinds of artists. Today we get the joy of hearing from one of Calgary's foremost devising artists, Anton de Groot. I had the pleasure of speaking with him a few days ago, and now you get the pleasure of hearing that conversation. So, without further ado, here is that conversation. Well, hello, Anton. Hello. I just am so thankful that you were able to join me and have this conversation. It's been a long time since I have seen you. (laughs) Just for our listeners and for my own interest, what have you been up to in the past sort of year and a half? Certainly. I, gosh, I did a handful of shows uh, really at the end of the 20, or beginning, I guess, of the 2019-2020 season. I worked uh, over at Theatre Calgary on Noises Off. Um, I did a show with Ghost River Theatre called Giant, which I was very pleased with. And I, what else did I do? Um, oh, I, I started working as an architectural lighting consultant, which has been really good through these COVID times. So as, of course, theater has been completely shut down, haven't been able to be making shows in the way that I'd really like to. So I found a way to transfer some of those old skills of making lights onto buildings and because buildings still keep happening. So that's really <laughs> what I've been doing. <laughs> of course, Gosh, what else? Um, go for a lot of walks. I got a dog like three days ago, and um, I play a stupid amount of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm yeah. finding that is like super common among theater folk. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. But it is a thing, and I love it. Neither really did I until I started getting into it, and, you know, here I am. <laughs> And so to go a little bit further back, just as like introduction here, could you just tell me a little bit about your past experience and education in relevant areas or what got you into theater in the first place? Absolutely. I uh, did an undergraduate degree at the University of Calgary in theater. I took a year off between high school and uh, university to kind of figure that out. And I realized that that was something that I really enjoyed and felt that there was a opportunity to maybe do it in a professional capacity. Um, So I joined UFC's drama program. Really, my intention, I think, was to be uh, in the directing stream. And while I was there, I took uh, the design classes. And it was a discipline, like I understood technical theater 
that it existed, obviously, and had done a bit of it in, in high school and in between. But I had, don't think that I fully understood the art form of stage design from sets, lights, sound. Well, I understood people certainly did it. I didn't understand quite the, um, the the true discipline and the true practice that was there. So I was very impressed and very excited and focused in on that. At the end of university, I started a theater company or I was invited to join to start a theater company with my friend, Simon Mallet. So I joined a company called Downstage at its early conception and ran that with him uh, and a few others for about three, four years or so. Um, I left the company as a um, administrator or as like as a member of the company just to because I was interested in do, growing my own practice and remained as a part of the creative ensemble which was fantastic and we built all sorts of shows together new original work um, essentially in a device creation model and then I just continued to do as much as I could I worked as an emerging director I worked as a designer I did some clown performance I did a little bit of everything <laughs> and at one point I was finding that I was my career was accelerating in a way that was outstripping my technical skill. So my drafting skills and um, drawing skills. And I was not quite uh, finding that I was able to do it as well as I feel a professional should. So I took a bit of time to go back to school and I did my master's in design and technical theater and really focused on that practice and on, and of course, on all of those technical skills and then went back at it. And my uh, career continued to grow. I worked every theater company in Calgary. I've worked at the Stratford Festival for a couple of seasons up in Ontario worked for the Prague Quadrennial of Performance Design a couple of times. And so it's been a great ride. Even though my focus right now is on architectural work, my theater career is not over, not even close. So Nice. So in terms of the theater world, do you have a title for the work that you do? A designer is what I call myself now. So, um, and I do set design, lighting design, and sound design, those three. So in the realm of devised work, which is, Mm -hmm. would you say that's majority of what you do now? I'd say probably it's about half and half of what I was finding myself doing. With Downstage was where I did a lot of that uh, at first. And that was something I'd always been very interested in, the idea of creating a body of work. I was inspired at a relatively young age by another company called One Yellow Rabbit and the ensemble that worked there. And I worked with them quite a bit, first as a bartender, and then I did some actual theatrical work as well. But they, uh, uh, they really inspired me and their idea of creating a body of work became very important to me and uh, something that I really wanted to do with Downstage and Simon and company was very into that as well. So that was some of my early work. And then the next part of my career, I was working a lot with Ghost River Theatre here in town. Eric Rose, artistic director, and uh, David Van Bell, former co-artistic director. Um, And they're both dear friends of mine and we work really well together. And their language and their devising language, I find very interesting and inspiring. And I find it very uh, a really great way to express what I'm interested in talking about. And they've really given space for that, which is great. A few of the shows I've done with them, for example, uh, Reverie or Giant. I've worked as a facilitator for their devised theater intensives a couple of times. So that language is something I really, really love. And it is my favorite discipline, without a doubt. In terms of comparison for people who mm-hmm. might not know the difference exactly, do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between a more traditional model and a devised model? Certainly. With a more capital T traditional theatrical 
process, we always start with the script. That is the impetus. It is the beginning. It is the end. It is everything comes from there. All the inspiration begins with that script. For myself as a designer working in that way, I'll, I'll work with all of my collaboration team, the director, the other designers, eventually with the actors and everybody and the t- trades people, the technical directors, production managers. We are all develop. Well, we're all coming up with our own ideas and, and do making our own art. It all comes back to telling that story. However, with a device theater model, it kind of flips it. We have the ideas first and then the script often comes later. So we often start with image and we start with theme. Uh, We start with small bits of writing, um, often like music, poetry, things that really inspire us that are all centered around the single theme that we are interested in exploring. For example, say Giant, which I did with Ghost River Theater. I was the sound and lighting designer for that. We did some workshops earlier on developing the script, and it was a little bit more of a scripted model. However, so much of it was grounded in devised. Uh, And while David Van Bell, he was listed as the scripter for that show, so much of what he wrote came out of what happened in the room on the day, uh, all of that. But then he used his very keen playwright mind to shape it and to bring that together. And then my contribution to it becomes the design becomes almost a part of the writing, which I find fascinating because while I work in images and visual visual moments on stage, that becomes a part of the script as well, in a way. Whereas in certain moments, you know, the script just said, some of the most like ludicrous stage directions about the universe imploding on itself. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll figure out how to do that. And I think about what that means and then create something. And then that speaks to that and that inspires something else. It inspires one of the actors to come up with a really interesting idea and about a, a bit of writing. And then they would work with David to create more text. And it's sort of a very cyclical, very like like a really positive feedback loop in a way that everything really continues to to add and contribute to each other. What do you find the devise process gives artists that the traditional model doesn't? It is a very specific kind of challenge. <laughs> For me, I'll speak from my experience at the very least. It gives me a way of expressing myself in a different way. While in really good rehearsal rooms, regardless of the the model that you're pursuing, I find that there may not necessarily be a hierarchy per se, but when you are in service to the script in a way, it's different than trying to say something that you are you yourself have physically written and seeing it put on stage. I think it just it provides a special kind of challenge. It allows space for a different kind of expression and a really interesting way to give space for the voice of all the artists in a room. One of the, the, the most important things that we always say whenever we go into one of those processes, be it with Downstage with Ghost River, you know, my own processes that I've started as well, is that the best idea wins. And it doesn't matter where that comes from. There's no, it, it doesn't matter if that's from the director or the artistic director or the general manager or the, the long-suffering cleaning staff that come in after us, right? It doesn't matter. If it's the best idea, it will always be there. And, and I, I, I really love that. In some of the work that I've just been doing, like reading up on different forms of theater, one of the phrases that I come across and something Barrett has used in our classes too is don't be precious. Like throw away something if it's not working, give your favorite joke to another person, like just yeah. whatever helps it move forward. Which Absolutely. It's hard sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I, th- I think that that is also a practiced skill. 
when you're really good at not being precious, you become the mo- one of the most generous contributors in the room. And that honestly, just like anything else, takes practice. At Ambrose, we just finished our devised piece. It will go up on mm-hmm. May 7th. And our final exam was a bit of a processing of how we came to create that. And one of the questions that we were asked to answer was something that you loved and something that you learned. So in maybe if you wanted to talk about Giant, as that's one of your most mm-hmm. recent ones, what's something that you loved about that process and what's something that you learned during that process? Something that I loved. I really loved some of the visual moments that we created on stage. I really did. And being given the space to do those particular two disciplines, sound and light, which traditionally are never done by the same person. It honestly doesn't make any sense in terms of a workflow sort of of way. Although in my opinion, it makes perfect sense in terms of like an artistic sense because light and sound when they are working together are always more powerful and more impactful. Of course, in like if you go to any rehearsal hall in the whole, not in the whole world, that's generalizing. If you if you go to any rehearsal hall in a traditional model with your fantastic Ayatsi crew there working hard, it's very easy to have a sound designer, a lighting designer to be working on at the same time. So you're almost doubling down on your space in the theater, which saves money um, because it saves hours. So that is, th- that's, I think, 98% of why that's those two are never done in a professional um, case. So I learned learned just exactly how powerful that that is. I also learned exactly how difficult that is because when we eventually did move into the theater, we had to be just, just so organized and we had to just make it happen. And to be honest, at one point when I was setting lighting levels, I I, w- I turned to the director and I said, I can't, I can't do sound levels. I just can't. I just, you know how it sounds. Here's my cue list set the first level. Right. And then I will come back and we will fine tune, but we just don't have time. Um, I think I learned on that uh, because it was, I would say it was probably one of the most, like simultaneously, while it was one of the most rewarding processes, it was was honestly one of the most difficult because it was so encompassing. It took over my whole life <laughs> and it was hard at, at, at times. It was really, really hard. And just the content, the the constraints, the technology we're trying to, to make work. At the same time, trying to be creative within those constraints can, that alone can be a little bit tough, but we went through that and I'm deeply, deeply proud of the work that was, uh, was done on that stage. Awesome. So my last question is a little broad, perhaps. What inspires you? Is it external things, internal things? Where do you find the inspiration and the energy to create? Hmm. That's a great question. It's, I think for me, at least, it always starts externally and then moves internally. So I get inspired by, I get inspired by really good stories. And it can be a story that I heard on the news or on a podcast or in a book, whatever. It doesn't matter wherever. Also uh, music, interesting works of art like painting or sculpture, those things I find very inspiring as well. And from there, I guess it becomes internal and it starts to grow in that way. So some of the best ideas that I've had and the most excited I've been creatively has has always been in collaboration, either with something like that, like a good story that I heard on the radio, but also with the people that I work with. I can't do what I do 
in a vacuum. It's just, it would be impossibly difficult and, and no fun. And it's narcissistic. And, <laughs> and I just, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in doing that way because the creators that I work with, they themselves are so brilliant and inspiring and, and fun. And I'm much happier responding to a really good idea than coming up with the first good idea because the first good idea is never the best. It's just always a starting point. And uh, I think that it's the people that I work with that inspire me the absolute most. And a bonus question as I'm thinking about graduating mm. and <laughs> moving forward mm-hmm. and as all emerging actors do, often creating your own work, what are some things that kind of come to the top of your mind, head, whatever that phrase is, about advice that you have for creating work in that way? Find your people. First and foremost, find your people. Like-minded people, people with the same sort of work ethic that you have, uh, Uh, talented people, folks that inspire you, folks that are inspired by you, hang out together, go see stuff together, talk about it. Some of the best work I've seen has been done in, in basements, right? Like it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to have your, your, your rehearsal hall booked and to have all the bells and whistles to start. Um, As long as you are actively feeding your inspiration and your imagination surrounded by those people. And from that, yeah, keep to the idea that that the best idea always wins. The Don't be precious about it. Listen to what everyone has to say and um, know how to say yes and. I mean, that's traditionally an improvisational tool and tenet, but when you're feeding each other in that way, like yes and, yes and, yes and, let that let that roll and let that grow. See as much as you can. Go to shows when we have shows again. <laughs> um, enjoy music. Go to like go to the art gallery. See stuff that you'd never heard of before. Go with your people and go meet other people. Go talk to the folks who are putting on the shows. I can guarantee you, you will not find a theater person out there who is not going to want to talk about their own self and their own work. I guarantee you. <laughs> um, and uh, especially, I, I can't think of a single time where someone has said no to a coffee or something, you know, like folk, like older artists and, and mid-career artists, we all want this art form to carry on and it's not going to be carried on by us. <laughs> it's going to be carried on by the next group and that next group and that next group. We're doing what we can here now. And the more that we can meet and inspire and be inspired by the next group of folks, the better. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And yeah. I'm sure I will see you around in the theater world. Definitely. No, I'm not going anywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely see you out there and around. And once again, many thanks to Anton for agreeing to guest star on our humble podcast. <laughs> this concludes the formal portion of the podcast, as in the episodes that Rachel and I will be graded for. But as you know, and as we have said, we do love theater and we would love to keep the conversation going. I can't tell you exactly what the next episode will be about. We haven't planned that far, (laughs) but you can rest assured that there will be some more cool theater chats with some very cool theater cats headed your way sooner rather than later. For now, we're signing off. Talk to you later, cool cats.
boop, boop, boop.